Hello and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is a message given by Tom Job on Sunday morning, March 12th, 2023, really from the whole Gospel of Matthew, but specifically chapter 28. Good morning, everyone. So um, I wanted to read to you out of, this comes from the Gospel of Matthew in... So this comes from chapter 28. Um, It says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to, to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you for saying those things, and we love you for just for those promises, and we love you for the fact that you're with us, and we love you for the fact that you think we could even do this, like that you think that you even look at us and you would... And you would call us to to be your students, like to be your followers, that you would have us. We love you for it and the confidence that you have that we could care about and know and do the things you say. Help us to get better and better and better at that. I lift up this time in your precious name. Amen. So, um, so, um, one thing that I think is super cool about like Jewish holidays in the Old Testament is that sometimes it will tell you in the law of Moses what you're supposed to feel that day. Like there, like there was a holiday called the, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was kind of like a national camping trip. And it says, and on those days, you're supposed to rejoice. So do that. Just be happy that day. And on the Day of Atonement, it says you're supposed to afflict yourself that day. So that's going to be a sad day. So one day is going to be a happy day. The other is going to be a sad day. Our holidays, we have some days, well, some some holidays are like that where you know what you're supposed to feel like um, your birthday. The song tells you what you're supposed to feel. And uh, Thanksgiving, the name tells you what you're supposed to feel. But there's other holidays like Christmas. A lot of people kind of have ambiguous conflicted feelings about Christmas, it can make them, have you ever heard that Dolly Parton song, Hard Candy Christmas? Good, I'm just like, honey, you're so depressed. And um, maybe, probably need to lower your expectations a little bit and also your solutions, um, meet someone and make love with them or get drunk on apple wine. I think they're making it worse I don't think it's really <laughs> helping you. So I used to have a lot of conflicted feelings about Labor Day because Labor Day, when I was a kid, when Labor Day made me happy and very sad because Labor Day, when Potsy and I were kids, we were friends. Like when we grew up together in the summer because we were both a part of 
what we used to call ACAC, which was um, the ACAC, Atomic City Aquatic Club. And it was like competitive swimming, because my, Marge and Joe, I don't know if they did this, but my parents forced us to do that. And I, I was terrible at it, and I hated it. And we, there was a summer when we were like nine, Potsy and I were, I think, nine, and where we had to be in the water from six to eight, in the morning, in that big, in the big pool outside, and then 10:30 to 12:30, and five to six. I mean, what? Who does that? And I was terrible at it. And there wasn't, and they didn't have goggles back in those days, and and they just threw chlorine in the water in a big old bucket. And so our eyeballs. So we spent the whole summer with red eyeballs, and our hair was yellow, almost turning a little bit green, and. Um, we were pretty buff for nine-year-olds. I mean, like, it'll do that to, to you, but I just hate, I just, I can remember swimming and crying. And so the Labor Day was always the Labor Day meet. It was the citywide ACAC ACAC meet. And so, and then that was the end of swimming and I was super happy. And then, but it was also the beginning of school. Like school started back in Oak Ridge back in those days on the Tuesday after Labor Day. So. Um, and I always hated it. I hated the school and I would always cry. I would always cry, but um, I figured, well, I still have red eyeballs, so they might think it's chlorine. You know, my hair's green, so they might think it's chlorine. I hadn't been crying, but. So we're in the season of Lent and I've always had kind of ambiguous, conflicted, feelings about it like why would a person do something where you give up things that you like or things you try to make your life a little bit harder or a little bit sadder um i was reading this a couple of years ago they put on twitter like what was the what people were giving up for lent number three was chocolate number one was twitter so um i'm not quite sure how they <laughs> said their thing but they number six seven was school uh, bread was number 17, sex was number 18, coffee was number 11, religion was number 26, beer was number 28, Starbucks was 35, breathing was number 40, carbs were 43, my virginity was 52, Netflix was 70, him was 89, and eating live mice was 92, and Christianity was 97, but I, but I thought, like, so people giving up chocolate, like dark chocolate, it has antioxidants, it lowers your blood pressure and your LDL cholesterol, and can elevate your mood, so I just, why would you give it up? Like, I always, I always felt like, if it's bad, quit it, just quit it, if it's a bad thing. If it's a good thing, thank God for it, and kind of rock it, and so, <laughs> in recent years, I've felt more like if my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, if most of them around the world and through the centuries have walked through the liturgical year in a way that has been a blessing to them and given them wisdom in walking with God, I might do well to not dismiss it like that. Um, I might, so I've been learning about it, and I've been leaning into Lent, and so, and I think, so this is what I have in my own heart about it is, as we approach, as the people of God around the world approach Holy Week, and it's the time when we're going to contemplate and meditate and stare directly at what Jesus did for us and how he died for us. 
it's like staring at the sun, or it's like staring, it's like getting ready for that eclipse that we had a few years ago. And we're gonna look like directly at it. And it would be good for me to ask my heart, um, well, one thing, so one thing that Jesus, um, did when he died for me and rose from the dead is that he did it to, to like own me, like that I belong to him. So if I say no to something that I like, it's kind of no practice. Like there may come a day that my master is going to ask something of me and I'm going to need to say no to myself. And I need to kind of be good at that. And so, but there's a, in, in Matthew chapter 20, in verse 28, Jesus said that what he did for us was um, what he called a ransom. And the word ransom, the word in the Greek language, it's a word that basically just means a, a purchase. It's a payment that Jesus was paying for me and that he was buying me, and he was purchasing me. And I've been thinking a little bit about, in the safety of knowing that he purchased me, that he's never going to ask for a refund, he's never going to take me back to get a return on his purchase, he's not going to exchange me for anyone, he's never going to do that. But, is there space in my life to ask myself the question, is he getting what he wanted when he bought me? Is he satisfied with his purchase? And I know in my evangelical Protestant heart that we have an aversion to questions like that, like we're basically allergic to them, like, oh, I'm not contributing anything, we're not contributing, and I'm not saying, Everything that he has to give us, his rescue of us is absolutely free, which is absolutely free, and we're not paying for anything. And it's totally, it's totally free. I remember there was a, one of my favorite pastors in the world was a British, a Brit named G. Campbell Morgan. One time he was speaking in, down near Cornwall on a series of evenings where they would have what they called a campaign where he was um, sharing Jesus in a big auditorium. And they had what they called an inqu inquiry room, which if you wanted to know more or how you could know Jesus, it was a room you could go to afterwards and talk to someone. And there was a guy that kept coming back there every night and he said, this is impossible. They, you, he keeps saying this is free. You don't get something for nothing. You can't get forgiveness for nothing. You don't, there, it's impossible. There's, there's always a price. You always have to pay something. You can't get something for nothing. And they tried to talk to him and talk to him and talk to him and they couldn't talk him out of it. And they asked Dr. Campbell Morgan, will you come talk to this man? Because we don't know what to tell him and he's coming back every night. So the last night he went back to talk to him and he said, so, and he said, so you keep saying this is free. There's nothing that's free. You don't get something for nothing. And Dr. Campbell Morgan said, can I ask you what you do? And he said, I'm a collier, which is, was an old way of saying coal miner. And he said, well, how do you get to work? He said, well, I walk to work. And he said, no, I mean, how do you get to where you work, like where you actually work in the mine? He said, well, we take this kind of an elevator that's on a cable. And then he said, well, how do you get up in the end of the day? He said, well, we get back in it, and it brings us up to the surface at the end of the day. He said, how much does that cost you? He said, 
oh, no, I don't pay for it. He said, no, you, you can't get something for nothing. He said, no, 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 this isn't the same thing. It doesn't cost me anything because it costs the company. And G. Campbell Morgan just looked at him. And the guy said, oh, I get it. It's free for me because it costs the company. But what it did cost the company, what it did cost Jesus, what he was buying for me was a relationship of love. And love always wants something. Like love always wants love back. If it didn't, it wouldn't be love. When a mom is holding her newborn and just feeding her newborn and she's waiting for the day that their eyes meet and she gets that first smile and she knows it isn't gas, it's really a smile, you know? And when a dad, when his little guy or his, his little girl, the day they said, dad, dad, look at dad, look at, look at, I'm doing it, dad, look at. And that dad just looks at that, and you know, she, they just want to please, just show their dad what they're doing. And their dad's like, you're totally awesome, dude. Righteous, righteous, you know? <laughs> When a guy, you know, a guy gives the girl of his heart just, he waits for the day that he, it's not going to cost her anything, but he's going to give her a ring. I should not be talking about this. <laughs> My girl's been in California till tomorrow, almost done. But on Valentine's Day, I told her, on Valentine's Day, I said, you know, babe, 49 years ago today, I gave you a ring. She said, no, you didn't. I said, I didn't? She said, no, it was on the 13th. You couldn't wait. And I gave her a ring. It cost $127. It was the most I had ever spent on anything in my life. And you just want him to say, I will, you know? So, um, there's a place in the Song of Songs in chapter 8 that said love is as strong as his death. It's as strong as the grave. Love is like a flame of fire. Love, it just wants to consume everything. Love wants everything. So I just, that Jesus would love me, I'm in a season where I'm kind of asking myself, is he getting what he wants from me? is love getting what it wants. So I, th I thought, I mean, I feel like we, you kind of have to keep in your lane because you, you know, that question could make you, you know, a little nutty. But so I decided for the next three weeks, what I want to do is I want to think about this in the context of the gospel, like the good news of Jesus, the gospels. And I want to ask Matthew, what does Jesus want from me? And I want to ask Mark, what does Jesus want for me? And then I want to ask Luke, what does Jesus want for me? And then I want to ask John, what does he want for me? So sometimes people ask, ask, like, why isn't there just like one big gospel? Like, why are there four of them? Like, why isn't there just a big huge one all clumped together? And the reason is because each of what we call the gospels, the good news of Jesus, according to Matthew or according to Mark or Luke, is they're all a narrative, and the, a narrative means a way of telling the story. So 
they all take stories, but each one tells them in a different way because it's for a different crowd and they're trying to make a different point. So like in the Gospel of Mark, it was written to a real diverse and eclectic community of lovers of Jesus in the city of Rome, but it had all kinds of people in it. So when Mark talks about Jewish holidays and Jewish things, he always explains what they were. Matthew was written to Jewish people, and he never does. So Matthew was a narrative of the stories of Jesus that was written to Jewish people to convince them that Jesus was their promised Messiah. Um, Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek word for the same thing is the word Christ. What it means is the king, the promised king. The, the reason that God called together the Jewish people, his special people, his chosen people, is that they were the ones who were going to give to this world. When the a king who would take over the world and make it into the world that it always should have been but never has been, when the world, when the world was like us. Somebody told me one time, when the world had become a disastrous mess, somebody said, so like in the Bible, this is how many pages it takes for God to create the entire world, create human beings, start a relationship with them, and for them to mess it up completely. <laughs> This is how many pages it takes for him to eventually fix it. But so, but he promised, so he took an old, old Chaldean couple and promised them that they were gonna have a baby, which they had never done it, and that he was gonna give them a land of their own, and that that baby would grow up and have kids, and those kids would grow up and have kids, and those kids would grow up and have kids, and they'd grow up and have kids and have kids and have kids, and, have kids, and eventually there would come one who would be the king of the world? And so, I mean, there was a certain point when he told this couple, when they were about 100, that they were gonna have this baby because it wasn't happening. And she laughed about it, and God said, are you laughing? And she said, I didn't laugh. He said, yes, you did. And then God was the one who laughed at the end because they did have a baby, and she named him Yitzhak, which means laughter. And Isaac grew up, and, and he had a couple of boys, and the Old Testament said, the king is going to come from all the descendants of Jacob, that one. And then Jacob had kids, and they grew up. And the prophecy said, of all your kids, the king's going to come from the one named Judah. And, Ju and Judah had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids. And Isaiah said, the king's going to come from that one of his kids, 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 kids. His name was Jesse, and Jesse had a bunch of boys. And he said, the king's going to come from his kid, David. So, and David had kids, and they 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 had kids. And eventually, there was a boy named Joseph who married a girl named Mary. And she had a kid. So Matthew starts, Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, the word taxes is comes from a Greek word, the word tasein, and the basic meaning of it is lists. Like a tax collector had to keep a lot of lists. 
And Matthew loves lists. He loves the number three, he loves the number five, and he loves the number seven all through his gospel. But the whole thing starts out with a long list of three groups of 14 names. And it starts with Abraham. And Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and then it went to Judah, all the way down to Jesus. There are 13 places in the Gospel of Matthew where he said, okay, so this happened in order to fulfill the prophecy that said. So this is all like that that a virgin would conceive. This happened because of what Isaiah said in chapter 7. They will call his name Emmanuel, which is what he said in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And that he would be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy that was written in Micah chapter 2. Then there's 10 other times that he talks about prophecies without that formula. Somebody said if you took just eight prophecies of the Old Testament of the Messiah, the chances of any individual fulfilling only eight of the 48 major ones is one in a hundred million billion. So you think how, so why would Matthew have to convince anybody of this? Why wasn't it super, super obvious to everyone that Jesus was the promised Messiah when he came? And the reason is because the kingdom that he came to open up was much wider than they expected. It included people that they didn't, even in that genealogy, there is in that genealogy a Canaanite prostitute. Who saw that coming? There was, a, there was a, a Moabite woman included in that. There was a woman who acted like a prostitute in order to get pregnant by her father-in-law, whose name was Judah. Mm. You know? So this includes people that we don't really expect. It's also a kingdom that was higher than they expected in the sense that it would take people that were socially lower and lift them up to levels that they did not foresee. Speaking of women, there were women who were faithful students of Jesus the Messiah that was unheard of. And they were the courageous and steadfast ones who stood by him in his suffering when everybody else had run away. And they were the first ones to share the message that he, was, that he had come back to life and that he was alive. It was wider, it was higher, and it was a longer kingdom than they anticipated. They thought that he would just come and take over this world and they didn't realize, and Matthew tells us in verse 24, they didn't realize that it was going to be a kingdom where the kingdom would come and he would pay for the kingdom and he would rise from the dead and he would go back into heaven and it was gonna be at least 2,000 years. They, nobody saw that coming before he would come and take over the world. Matthew chapter 13, the whole chapter is about that. And the, re the reason that his kingdom is so long in coming, it, was, it didn't come in a day. And that it would be 2,000 years at least before he takes over the world. The reason for that is love. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on that donkey and everybody knew he was the, Messiah, the promised Messiah, if he had taken over the world on that day, there would have been no one qualified to go into that kingdom. He had to pay for it first. And when he paid for it and he rose from the dead, and if he had taken over the world then, there only would have been 120 people in it. There would have been no Colombians in it. There would have been no Cambodians in it. 
there would have been no Canadians in it. There would have been no Polish people in it or no Peruvians or no Pennsylvanians. So what is happening now is in this 2,000 year period is Jesus is inviting and opening and encouraging people all over the world to accept him as their king, to bow before him as the king, to come into the kingdom. When the message of Jesus was preached the very first time in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people opened their heart to Jesus, their king. Sociologists estimate that that happens around the world 3,000 people in the world accept Jesus as their savior every hour of every day, 24 seven. The way that happens, like the way that you could convince someone that a Middle Eastern, lower middle class craftsman is alive and the answer to all their problems is that they see it in someone. They see him in someone. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, when he was talking about like, what, so what are we supposed to do? Like what are, now that you're going up into heaven, he said, go into all the world and make disciples, students, learners, followers of Jesus, of all ethnicities, of all different kinds of people. That's what we're doing now. We're, he said, teaching them to obey everything that I command you. Like, so in, so in, in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, which we, the Sermon on the Mount, which is like the most concise and codified teachings of Jesus. If the teachings of, Mark is the shortest gospel. If the teachings of Jesus were taken out of Matthew, Matthew would be shorter than Mark. But, so in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want my students to do. It says that he looked in verse 1, he looked at the multitudes. It's not for them. It's, his teachings are not for them. He said he saw the multitudes and said to his disciples, this is for you. I, I want you to do this. What if there was an army of people around the world who, according to Matthew chapter 5, what is it, like verse 28, where, what if there was a multitude of people who, when, who didn't look at other people in sexual ways, in objectifying ways, because my king doesn't want that, because he's my king and he doesn't want me to, because it isn't love to look at people that way. What if there were, what if there was a multitude of people who loved their enemies? The word enemy is just a word that means to hate. Like, to, what if, what if, what if people loved people who didn't like them? What if there was, a, who just loved people who hated them because my king wants me to? What if there was a multitude of people around the world, according to chapter six, verse one, who did things and gave things and who, for people in private because their father was watching them? And they did it just to please his heart. They were just longing to hear him say, you're totally awesome, dude. That, that righteous. You know, the, they just live for that, live for the father's pleasure because they believed he watches them and that he is with them. What if there was an army of people, according to what he says in the end of chapter 6, who didn't worry, who didn't worry. I'm not going to worry about anything because my king doesn't want me to. Well, it's not that easy. I know it's not that easy, but I've been spending this entire week every day doing things in private because I believe my father's watching me and I believe he's with me. And if I really, really believe that and I get good at believing it when he tells me not to worry, it should be the easiest thing in the world for me. That's what my king wants. If I asked Matthew, 
What does my king want from me? He would say that. He's a king. He's a king of love. But he just wants you to care about what he said and about what he's asking us to do. He wants you to know what he said. And he wants you to care about it. He wants that to matter to you. Like, I, a few years ago, I made a list of every command of Jesus in the Gospels. Every one. When he commanded the storm to be quiet, I put that down. When he told Satan to get away, I put that one down. But every commandment of Jesus. If he said, rise, take up your, take up your pallet, and walk, I counted that as three. In Matthew, there's 186. In Mark, there's 101. In Luke, there's 167. And in John, there's 83. Most of them are super sweet. Don't be afraid. Go in peace, my daughter. Um, take courage. Believe in me. But some of them are difficult. But the reason that I would do them, the reason I would try to do them, the reason I would care about doing them is because I know he's sweet. He said in, in Mark chapter 10, before he ever explained that this was his destiny, he said, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. But in the next chapter, he said, I'm meek and lowly of heart. And he gave his life for me, and he loves me, and love wants love back. And if that's what he wants from me, I want to be a person who cares about that, like who cares about what my master asked us to do. And I want to know it, I want to learn them, and I want to care about doing them. There's kind of a math to this, like somebody said, do you know what I mean? Like to, to just get better, I just feel like what if everybody who believed in Jesus and who loved Jesus, what if that's what mattered to them? In any issue, in any issue in my life, the first question I have is, what does my master say about this? Do I know? Do I care to know? What does my master ask me to do? Do I know? Do I care to know? He's my king, and that should settle it for me. So there's kind of a math, like somebody calculated that if you had 10, so let's say you had 10 people, and they were really, really, really awesome at sharing the message of Jesus. And they were able, each one of them, to lead somebody to Jesus, like three people to Jesus every day. So that on average, all 10 of them were able to lead 1,000 people per year to Jesus. So at the end of a year, you have, you have um, 10,000 people who believe in Jesus. And then they just keep doing it. At the end of two years, you have 20,000 people. In the end of three years, you have 30,000 people. At the end of 22 years, you have 220,000 people. But what if you had somebody who, 10 people, and in one year, each one of them led somebody to Jesus and helped them be a disciple, somebody who cared about the teachings of Jesus and who wanted to do them to the extent that the next year, that one guy does it again, and that guy does it with someone and teaches them to love Jesus and to follow Jesus so that at the end of that year, that guy would do it again, that guy would do it again, and the new guy would do it again. In that math, at the end of one year, you would have 20 people, the 10 you started with, and the one person each of them led to Jesus and help them to be a follower of Jesus, at the end of two years, you'd have 40. At the end of three, you'd have 80. At the end of 22, you'd have 
943,040. That always breaks down. Like that math is so cool. It never really works that way. And the reason is because people who believe in Jesus, not everybody cares about this. Not everybody really cares about Jesus being their king and following him and because he loves them and love is when they're hard and they just want to follow Jesus, the love of their heart. They don't always care about it. One thing that's kind of a common thing in the Gospel of Matthew is that doesn't matter to you. You may have to do this on your own. There may be nobody, if nobody else chooses to do this, it can't matter. There's a place in chapter 25 where some people had oil and other people wanted it because they hadn't thought about it. And they said, I can't give mine to you. You have to get it yourself. There's a place in chapter 7 where he said, there's a gate. It's very narrow. You have to go through it by yourself. And if nobody else cares about what you care about in the deepest place in your heart, don't worry about it. The world has been revolutionized by individuals who said, if nobody cares about this, if nobody cares about following Jesus and really, really, really doing what he said, I do. I will. And they've changed the world. There's a place in, so y'all know like the Narnia books, like the C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia books. It's kind of like he said, if the story of Jesus were put in another universe, what would it look like? And there's, there's this person, there's this lion, Aslan, the lion. And there are these kids who, they were evacuated out of London during the bombing of London, and they wind up in Narnia, and they become kings and queens, and there was a certain place where they got called back to Narnia because something terrible was happening. And they were trying to find this prince, Prince Caspian, Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy. And they were getting a little bit lost in the woods. And then Lucy saw the lion, Aslan. I saw him, I see, I see Aslan. And the other one, we don't see him. Well, I see him, I see him. He wants us to follow him. Well, Lucy, we can't see him. You can't just be saying that you see him. Like, what if I said I saw him? You can't just be blackmailing people like that. Like, you can't say, you have, I, we have to do what you say because you say you see Aslan. She said, but I do see him. We don't see him. They took a vote. Peter said, Edmund said, she's been right before. Peter said, I know, but we have to take a vote. And I said, no. I say, no. We have to keep going. And she wept bitterly. And they got super, super lost. And she woke up in the morning and she felt something. She felt a magic in the air. Something was happening and she got up all by herself. And there he was, the lion. She rushed to him. She felt like her heart would burst. The next thing she knew, she was kissing him, putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in his beautiful silkiness of his mane. Aslan, dear Aslan, she sobbed, and she fell half sitting, half lying between his front paws, and he bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue, and his warm breath came all over her, and she gazed up. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. 
Aslan said, Lucy, we must not lie here. We have work at hand. You have work at hand, and much time has been lost. Yes, wasn't it a shame, said Lucy? I saw you all, right? They wouldn't believe me. They're all so. From somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there was the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you didn't mean. How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come, come up to you alone. How could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could have. It wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been alone. I know not if I was with you. But what would have been the good? Aslan said nothing. You mean that it would have turned out all right? Aslan said, go back to the others now and wake them up and tell them that you've seen me again and that you must all get up at once and follow. Do you mean that's what you want me to do? Gasped Lucy. Yes, little one, said Aslan. Will the others see you too? Asked Lucy. Certainly not at first, said Aslan. Later on, it depends. But they won't believe me, said Lucy. It doesn't matter, said Aslan. So she buried her, her head in his mane to hide from his face. But there must have been magic in that mane. She felt lion strength going into her. All of a sudden, she sat up and said, I'm sorry, Aslan. I'm ready now. Lord Jesus, as we take this bread, and take the cup for a minute as we meditate and contemplate what you did for us and how you died for us. I pray there would be a welling of our heart that would look you in the face and say, your love has won me. I want to be one of them who lives for what you care about and lives to please your heart. In your precious name. Are you hungry and naked and poor? Distressed and tormented, forlorn? In Christ is a suitable store for all that unto him come. He's bread and he's water and wine. The treasure you're longing to find Seize your own efforts in flight To Christ the fountain of hope Jesus the source of life Savior of deaf and blind Come rescue me from the sin where I dwell Shame. Mm -hmm.